Greetings and salutations, fight fans. It is Sunday afternoon here in Abbotsford, British Columbia. It is Sunday evening in London Town, where my co-host Harry Powell is. Mr. Powell, good evening. Hello, squires. We are back for the latest edition of the Next Day Takeaways. A little bit later than normal, but, you know, these things happen in MMA. I did not watch the fights live last night. We went and visited some friends. Harry had some running around and some things to do today, including training, including watching the fights himself, because he had other things to do yesterday as well, including sleeping, because he's in London, and these things happen in the wee hours of the morning, and he can't be staying up till 6 every weekend though he will be this coming weekend for UFC 276 because it's going to be bonkers. But before we get to that, we want to get to this week. So before we actually get into the the action, I'm not going to spend too long on it. I'm not going to be Chief Petty Officer Spencer Kite. But I will say, looking at this card, going into it when it was announced, it looked like it was going to be an entertaining card filled with good fights, filled with intriguing important performances for some young talents and to in any way diminish that this fight this this event or particularly this main event would be something that people could overlook or maybe you know it wasn't that great because of the name value continues to just befuddle me in the wake of this fight where Matoish Gamrock goes out and scores a unanimous decision win over Armin Saryukin in a five-round instant classic, terrific fight, back and forth, full of scrambles, full of action, close rounds all the way through, just a phenomenal fight where I don't think either fighter loses any loses any ground. So you can catch as a loss, but he doesn't. His stock doesn't drop. And if you want to get into the arguments and the and the deep muck of trying to figure out the correct way to score that fight more power to you. We're not going to do that here, but to me, this was just, this was, this was exactly what I expected from these two fighters when, when it was announced and it was promoted as the main event. Obviously I was excited because these are two top 15 guys that I think extremely highly of Gamrock came in on a three fight winning streak, Armin on a five fight winning streak, expected it to be what it looked like on Saturday it, I mean, it exceeded my expectations because, of course, it did. Because, of course, these guys did. Harry, I know you had a lot of enjoyment watching this fight um, for for many reasons. One, just the overall, you know, energy of it and, and competitiveness of it. But a lot of technical moments and a lot of tactical things that really jump out and, and stand out. What were What were your biggest takeaways? From that main event on Saturday night. Um, Jesus. So I think the biggest thing I took away was we are witnessing the ushering in of a brand new era of MMA. And I think that that era of MMA is what would be viewed as the old era. Sorry. The old era of MMA would view this as excellence in all realms. Whereas I think we now must start considering this as just the standard in all realms. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean by that that Armin Saryukin came in and had a game plan of body hitting 
lots and lots and lots of kicks to the body, some shots to the body. He he really wanted to dig a left hook in that rib. He wasn't able to to land it as much as he wanted to because Mateusz Gamrot was using his range really well, using his jab really well, using backhands as jabs, just really nice switch hitting from both guys. Both guys were switching stances. Both guys, you know, before we even get to the, the grappling stuff, both guys were landing really beautiful takedown entries. They were scrambling well. Neither guy was able to get to and hold a dominant position for a significant amount of time. The most significant amount of time held was uh, when Gamrot had uh, Soryukin's back for maybe 25 seconds. Um, and then, you know, Soryukin's recovering and he's moving to a butterfly guard and, and doing the things. Um, I think my, yeah, the overarching point, the overarching takeaway is that last night ushered in what will be, I think, the future of high-level mixed martial arts. And we are very, very fortunate as fight fans that that is the future, I think. Yeah, we've touched on it a little bit here and probably on the preview as well, the Severe MMA preview show that we do every week. But it feels like, and, and I agree with you completely, it feels like fighters like Gamrot, fighters like Saryukin, that kind of profile, those. So if you look at errors, you look at progressions, right? We had stylistic fights way back in the day. The origin, karate guy versus jujitsu guy versus sumo guy versus, right. Then we got to a point where we had specialists and it was, can my specialty outweigh your specialty? Then we got to kind of generalists where there was still a, a strong leaning one way, but everybody started getting to be okay at everything. Then we got to everybody was good at everything and specialists were still there, but everybody was pretty good at everything. And it became about size and athleticism a little more and pedigree and conditioning and where you trained and coaching and things like that. And now, as you said, it feels like we're moving into that range of tremendous athletes, who are very good everywhere and the level to, to be at a top 15 kind of contendership level, the level to get there, the bar to get there has been set extremely high and it's, it's going to be difficult for people to get there. But when they do the number of people that do, it's going to be a treat for us as fight fans because the level of fights we're going to continue to see are absolutely phenomenal yeah i mean i think i think it's important to to rephrase that slightly i think that what armand soryukin and gamrot showed us last night is what we're going to see at an amateur level in the next five to ten years so we as it's important that we as media and as the MMA community are not Luddites in this and not that we can be Luddites because you look at that and you're like, fuck me, that was a great fight. But what I mean is we must understand that we are seeing an old era of MMA where, as you say, you know, Damien Meyer is quote unquote retired. Wonderboy Thompson doesn't have a ton of time left. The guys in our current stratosphere of MMA that are the gatekeepers to the old era are slowly, sorry, very quickly diminishing. And we are ushering in a new era of fighter. And there was a couple of them 
on this card, right? Umar Nurmagomedov was one of them. Tiago Moises showed a little bit of it. And equally, I think that uh, for his part, Nodumbeke showed a little bit of it. And maybe we can talk to this in a little while. But the greatest showing, the greatest offering of this, the essence of the new era was Gamrat Saryukian. And I think that the essence of that is, I will make a, a reference. And if your listeners are stateside, you will not get this, but I will make it anyway. Soccer or football, as the real word to call it is, changed when Johan Cruyff defined something as total football. Total football essentially meant that the 11 players on the pitch could play in any position and there should not be rigid structure to the process of football. Everything should be fluid and everything can be amalgamated. The ball should move with the team and the team should move with the ball, right? MMA in the modern era is now that. It is fight wherever the fight goes. It means guys have offensive and defensive wrestling. They have transitional hitting. They have stance switching. They have fighting from a variety of different ranges. They have striking from a variety of ranges, I should say. They have an ability to get up if they are taken down, to scramble if they are on the way to being taken down. They have submission offense. They have submission defense. They have a bit of tie. They have a bit of boxing. They have MMA striking, full stop. That, I think, is the new era of MMA. And the old era, as Nietzsche would say, is dead. So to clean up a couple of things there, one, our audience, not my show, our show. Sure, sure. Two, the soccer comp here in in North America would be kind of positionless basketball. We moved from rigid positions, the center plays here, the power forward is there, small forward maybe oscillates between the two you've got your guards now we have everybody can shoot threes ideally everybody can switch one through five or guard multiple positions it doesn't have to be that static basic understanding it is let's create some fluidity to things where everybody can contribute in multiple ways in multiple facets and do multiple things and we saw on saturday two guys do a lot of the things, just a tremendous performance. We will talk about it in future. I know when we were talking off air and sort of going, going over the fights this afternoon, this morning for me, that we were going to do a, a speakers about this at some point on the Patreon show, go and subscribe to the severe Patreon, please people. It is, it really is the best thing out there. Just go and do it. This felt like one of those fights where if you wanted to get bogged down in oh my God, who won that round? I want to score it. You probably lose some of the beauty of the fight and some of the enjoyment of the fight. Whereas you and I both kind of had moments where we were like, ah, fuck it, I'm not going to score this. I just want to watch this terrific fight. Does it feel a little bit like we're, we're losing sight of just enjoy the moment and just enjoy what's happening and accepting that there are close fights where it can go like rounds can be toss-ups rounds can be super close and hard to score. And if it goes the way you, if it goes against what you thought, 
It doesn't mean that those people are idiots and they're wrong. It just means it's a really close fucking round and a really great fight. I don't know. Is the answer. I, my personal perspective is that I think it's important that we have guys like Sean, like Scott Fontana, who are looking at fights purely from a judging perspective. Agreed, 100%. And that are, and that are doing this and are essentially sacrificing. And uh, I talked to Sean about this very thing, and he says that he he feels like he enjoys fights less because he's watching them from a judging perspective. And that, you know, it does, it has to. If you're a judge, if you're Ben Cartledge, right, or you're Sal Diamato, standing, sitting on the side of the cage, you have to repress the emotions that your body wants to articulate when you're watching a fight. Because if you're like, fuck me, when something crazy happens, you're going to miss something. Because your brain is occupied with the feeling of something rather than the um, logical processing of something based on a criteria. That's why I think judging is such a difficult job. Because, yeah, sure, if you're watching fighter A versus fighter B and it's a dominant one-sided affair, it's easy enough to be like, that guy wins. But when you have a fight like the main event last night, and it is a close affair, it is an affair where, you know, you and I have talked offline, and I'm going to state this again. I don't judge fights because I'm not good at it, and I'm not good at it because I enjoy watching them. I enjoy the spectacle of them and I get bogged down in the analysis of them too much and I lose track of if I try to score it. I'm not good at judging fights. I'm not good at scoring them. Yes, I understand the criteria, but I'm just not good at doing it. I always will defer to guys better than me. Um, but I feel as though, as I started this point with, it's important to have guys that are going to do that and I think it's important that the general public views in some fashion fights through a lens of understanding that pertains to the criteria. I think then that allows you in some fashion to actually enjoy the fights more. But as we're going on a philosopher loop, Carl Jung will tell you that the line between extremity is the line that you should always walk right? So having an idea of what the criteria is and looking through a lens of the criteria, but also looking through the lens of having fun is probably the best way to do this for the average person. We are 15 minutes in and Harry has hit us with Nietzsche and Carl Jung. I am really looking forward to seeing where the rest of this goes. Before we depart the main event, Matoish Gamrock calls out Justin Gaethje, says he is, you know, the guy I want to fight next. He is a he is the most dangerous fight in this division. He's a banger. He's a guy that's going to bring it. That That's a fight I would like. You're shaking your head at, at the way Gamrock called him out. Are you interested at all? And if not, who would you like to see? What's the right sort of pairing for Gamrock going forward in, in your estimation? I think Gamrock runs Gaethje over, to be honest. I think that if you um, if you look at the the way that Armin defended some of those takedowns in the early goings. Um, 
the chain, it takes a, a supreme athlete to be able to have your leg extended above the line of your own shoulder and still have a ton of balance, be able to land shots and to be able to high leg out at the same time. It is seriously an incredible athletic feat to be able to do those things. And I think that even Gamrock couldn't quite believe what he was seeing, which is right. why he went back to the well five or six times, right? right? And after the fifth or sixth time, you realize that he just stopped trying the high leg because he's like, right. this motherfucker just isn't going to go anywhere, right? I don't think at this point in his career, Justin Gaethje has that level of athletic ability. We have heard from the horse's mouth Justin has said, oh, I'm a really good defensive wrestler. I'm really good, whatever. Well, his defensive wrestling was tested against Charles Oliveira and it came up short. His defensive wrestling was tested against Habib Nurmagomedov and it came up short. If I'm Gamera, I'm looking at both of those and I'm like, I can take this motherfucker down. Right. And we know that when it hits the mat, Gamera is a very high-level grappler a very high-level submission artist, specifically for MMA. The oscillation between strikes and submission attempts are a dilemma that he's well-versed in. Okay, if you go back and watch his ADCC run, for Gamrot, that is, uh, he fell short to Gary Tonin. There's absolutely no disrespect in, in, in falling no, short no to Gary Tonin in, yeah. in the ADCC. Uh, equally, if you go and watch his run in the trials at, to ADCC, uh, when he wins, he has an absolute tear up with one of Europe's best in Russ Nichols and, and, you know, comes up short in that match, but these things also happen. He knows exactly where he is on a grappling mat. He knows exactly where he is in the chess of, of, of human jujitsu. And I think he dominates Gaethje there. So I think the call out was a very smart one right. because I think it's an easy enough matchup for him. So do I want to see it? Well, if you're looking at an upside for Gamrot, sure. It's you know, I, I think it's an easy enough fight. Um I liked it for that reason. That's the exact reason I liked it. And so I'm very much the guy that one is going to champion these fighters before they've been in the cage with the super super established set, like the Gaichis, as we did going into this. You are as well. And I want to see that upside fight. Now I don't like it because if Gaethje happens to win, he's back in there and we've bounced a we've bounced an up-and-coming name. I don't think he wins. I think it is a fight that, as you said, Gamrot has multiple ways to win that fight. He needs to avoid getting clipped. These things that tends to happen at times when you're fighting Justin Gaethje, but I think it's a diminishing situation now at this point of Justin Gaethje's career, as you said. And I would love to see it because I think it can be a more high-profile main event or a bigger fight for Gamrot that puts him into that actual championship conversation, which I think is where he deserves to be. He's at the point in his career at 31 years old, now on a four-fight winning streak in the UFC, very good win here against Saryukin, that he should be in that mix. So while I don't necessarily love it, absolutely would watch and and absolutely think it's a it's the right decision for him you have one more thing before we move forward give me Darius or michael chandler i mean Darius is the one i i really like i like Darius for a lot of people because i think benny deserves an opportunity as well um i know the ufc was was still kind of pushing for the mahashev fight but i think that's probably that ship has probably sailed 
Give Until... Makachev the next title shot. Yeah. Do Benny Daggers or uh, or Iron Chandler versus uh, Gamrot. Whoever wins that gets the shot after Makachev. And then, I mean, give Saryukin fucking anyone. Who cares? <laughs> I think Just I think you match both of those guys as if they won, to be honest. I agree. I agree. There's no reason to step Saryukin back after this fight. It was that close of a fight. You can make a case for him winning. I think Sean had it 49-46. Saryukin, upon first watch, me watching it this morning, I had it no worse than 3-2 Saryukin, but I can sit here and absolutely say I understand the case for 3-2 Gamrot. Great fight. Loved it. Can't believe people downplayed it because of the name value. Don't listen to them. Listen to us. Co-main event of the night, a fight that you and I were both interested in from a prospect perspective, from a test perspective. Shavkat Rachmanov goes in, submits Neil Magny. And I know from watching this fight and and sending you messages as as I was watching it, you having watched it already, there was a lot you really liked. And it pertained to a thing you talk about regularly here. And it's one of the things I like having you on for that you've introduced to my lexicon that you've hipped me to in watching fights. And it's the dilemmas that that Shavkat Rachmanov poses in that finishing sequence of Neo Magni. So walk us through it. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, prior to the finishing sequence, you know, the finishing sequence was actually quite long and quite drawn out. Um, Shavkat managed to get the takedown in, in a similar fashion in both rounds, and that's from catching a naked kick from Magni uh, and, then, and then running him down from it. Um, there was a couple of moments where Magni was looking to sweep from deep half or, or come up from deep half and, and Shavkat was trying uh, to threaten Darces uh, from from his his half and deep half attempts to sort of ward him off, right? And um, the actual finishing sequence came from uh, sort of a trilemma, if you will. So Shavkat had Magni pressed up against the cage in a, in a, in a half guard situation and he was looking for the guillotine. He wanted the guillotine. But if you try to hit a guillotine with one of your legs in encaptured in a half guard, you will not finish it because Magni has the ability to move away from the guillotine, taking pressure off the guillotine, and you will land on bottom side control or you'll have to scramble, and that causes big problems. But Shavkat did a fantastic job of using his left arm to trap the right arm of Magni to the ground and using that to try to start to pummel his legs free. When Magni realized that was coming, he would try to break the grip and, and use his feet and hands to, to push Shavkat's leg back inside. So Shavkat then began to threaten a guillotine. Magni had to defend by putting his head back to the mat, which opened up his chest. So Magni started to punch him in the face. Shavkat started to punch him in the face, right? So we worked through this trilemma for about 40 seconds until eventually... Shavkat's able to clear his knee line, pushes his knees uh, to almost as if he was going to mount Magni, but then sits his left leg underneath his left hip, connects it to Magni's hip as he locks up a guillotine, throws his right leg over the top. That stops Magni from circling around and taking pressure off the choke and finishes him. Now, the impressive thing for Shavkat is his understanding of position and his understanding of the hierarchical need of what he has to do to get the finish, right? 
if he just jumps on a guillotine, he loses position and he likely ends up on bottom. Does he stay on bottom? Who knows? We've not seen it. But he and Umano Mergovedov have such a zero risk approach to their grappling. That's the thing that's ultra impressive. When he got Neil Magny down, at no point did it look like Magny was going to have an opportunity to get back up. The moment that he regarded, Shavkat does the same thing that the Magomedov brothers and cousins do, and that's they just retreat to the safe place that is half guard or quarter guard, or they retreat to a place of triangling over the knees. They then just work for upper body frames and go right back to the well. They are so comfortable in their pinning positions that Magni could do very little to get to a position where he was seated rather than supine and an ability to get his hips underneath him to get up. The other thing that was ultra impressive is when Magni was uh, supine and he wasn't, and Shavkat wasn't connected was he was looking for up kicks and Shavkat at points was a little naive and just kind of walked through them. But other than that, he would use the timing of the up kick to sort of strafe, find a way to neon belly and be back into the same repertoire. The grappling of Shavkat, I am entirely sold on. The striking, however, I'm slightly less sold on. Yeah, we'll get to that part in a second. The thing I liked, and, and you mentioned that the finishing sequence was kind of more drawn out because it is that series and that sequence of attack and defend and sort of hunt and pack for things. And I texted it to you. I messaged it to you as we were watching it. The thing he does so well or did so well in that performance to me, in addition to the actual finish, is he's continually looking at chokes and throwing it out there a little bit. Just that little hint of, well, I've got your neck here and I can get this Darth. Or I've got your neck here and I can. And as soon as he does, Magni's got to react. And it's not that he's, I think we see it a lot with fighters where they're hunting and committing. Whereas Shavkat, it is hunting to get a reaction. If it's there, he's, he's fine and he's going for it and he's locking it up and we're going home. But the minute it's not there, the second it's not there, he goes, it's not here, but you've reacted and I can move to this next thing. It's the progression of things where he's got it sorted three steps ahead based on what you do. And it's three different things in that flow chart. If you go here, I go here. If you do this, I do that. And if you do nothing, I take your fucking neck and we go home. I say it all the time in my writing. We say it all the time on this show and others. To get to 16-0 and 0 with 16 finishes against the level of competition this man has faced validates the hype, justifies the hype, shows that he is very much for real. That doesn't mean, however, that there aren't still things to address and questions to be answered. You still have some questions about the striking, about the stand-up. What are they and, and how would you like to see them best addressed? So this might be incredibly arrogant, right? I love this but, already. But I feel like I have no idea how many hours of fights I've watched. And I don't know live and replay for analysis purposes. I genuinely have no idea. It's certainly in the late hundreds, maybe into the thousands right? And I feel like the reason that I watch them and the way that I watch them 
mostly for both fun and analytical purposes. I feel as though there's a subconscious database that's been formed in the back of my brain that influences my gut feeling about a fighter. And when I watch them, there are some times that I have a feeling in a similar way you walk into a room and you have a feeling about something that's very difficult for you to immediately put your uh, thoughts into words. The feeling I have when I watch Shavkat Rachmanov fight is if he sets his rhythm and he gets to positions in which he is comfortable, you're probably fucked, right? We saw that with Neil Magny last night. The moment he caught that kick, you could see Magny be like, shit. Right. And then Magny hits the ground and Rachmanov's like, okay, you don't get up now. Right. And then for some reason, Neil Magny did it in the start of the second round too. Right. And I think there's questions to ask there because, you know, one of the things I said in the preview show was I wasn't sure that Magny was going to have enough intensity to push Rachmanov back because he's too intelligent. Right. And then he throws the same kick that got him taken down the first time. Like my, my argument for that is I think because of how dominant the grappling was from Rachmanov, I think that Magny was frustrated and I think there was an air, and I hate to say this, but I feel like there was an air of desperation to his movements and his decision-making. And when you do that against a guy like Rachmanov, it's going to cause you severe problems, right? But the striking itself, I just feel like there's naivety there. I feel as though there's a ton of creativity. I feel as though that striking is very instinctual but I just feel as though he's not confident in his range yet. It feels as though there are moments that he's second guessing what to throw, when to throw. I think we did see a little bit, a very tiny shallow amount of some of the problems that Magni can cause with range, right? There was moments where Shavkat was kind of stood dawdling a little and Magni caught him with a few jabs and maybe a right hand here and there. And then, look, obviously, it was a mauling overall, right? It was an absolute (laughs) mauling. But when we're talking about this stuff, you have to look for and find those small moments and not just take, well, he mauled him. Absolutely, he did, but there's still stuff to learn and build from. Right, right. And a guy, one of my friends from the gym messaged me and said, we need to see the Shimaev versus Rachmanov fight. And my response was, absolutely fucking not we don't and the reason for that is they were like oh but they've mauled everyone and i'm like they didn't like it's not the same shimeyev went in and looked absolutely flawless in every single fight until he got to gilbert burns and gilbert burns showed that he was a human right that goes to show the level of hamzat shimeyev that you go and you go all the way up the rankings in a stack division like 170 until you get to the top three before there's a guy that's like, by the way, you're human. Right. And and it's you're human, but you still won. Sure. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, you know, let's not get away from the performance itself. It was an unbelievable fight. But still, we saw elements of Hamza that were... Exposed is the wrong word because it has deeply negative connotations. Right. But Gilbert was able to have success and find methods to get inside and and utilize 
his own game against Hamza, right? No other fighter up until that point had been able to do so. And I think the glimpses that we saw against Neil Magny for Shavkat Rachmanov tells me that the stuff, the gut instinct that I had is apparent. And yes, Rachmanov is absolutely destined for the higher echelons of that division. Yes, he passed the test against Neil Magny with pretty flying colours. We said this before, we said it in the pre-fight. If you go out there and you dominate Neil Magny and you get him out of there, you're a very, 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 very good fighter. And Rachmanov is that. However, give me Sean Brady. I was going to see if you were going to go there. I was waiting to see if you would actually drop the name. Sean Brady is a guy that, for those that maybe for some reason don't know, undefeated fighter, uh, Philly guy, got a win over Michael Chiesa last time out. Um, I mean, Paul Paul Felder describes him as a brick shit house. I've talked to some of his training partners and and asked for confirmation of that that it's not just Felder bigging up his guy. Those those reports and, and accounts have been confirmed. Sean Brady is tough as nails. He is undefeated. He is very much on the rise. I don't know that I want to see it because I, you know, my thing is always keep as many guys moving forward in parallel lines as as possible. But given where the division is at and how many veteran guys are ahead of both that are kind of just squatting on their rankings and not looking to fight and and things like that. Yeah, I'll take that as a I'll take that as a, you know, September main event, October main event. That would be lovely to see. Brady Rachmanov is the 170 version of Sorry You Can Gamrot. I like it. I like that call. We're gonna we're gonna save that. We're gonna bookmark that. We're gonna remember that for the future when and if it comes to pass, so we can point to Harry's brilliance again. We're gonna kind of just skip over Josh Breeson and Alain Baudot. You know, main event heavyweights doing main event heavyweight things. Parisian gets the TKO finish in the second round. It it was kind of lumbery. But we're jumping it because Tiago Moises did beautiful things against Christos Yagos. Um, Tiago Moises, a guy, if you if you read what I wrote in the lead to the week, guy I still think very highly of, 27 years old. Yes, he was only 4-4 four and four coming into this fight in the UFC, but he lost to a bunch of high-level competition. I thought he had the opportunity to go out and get a finish here. And boy, oh boy, did he ever. Harry, you loved this. Walk us through the beauty of, of Tiago Moises' back take and then finish. Absolutely. So Moises showed that you can absolutely, Sean Sheehan, get submissions in modern MMA. Right. Like I think that, okay. So, so the finish itself was, was, was very systematic. It was very clean. There wasn't any flash to it. There wasn't any brilliance to it per se. It was just beautiful, clean, crisp, effective transitions. So Moises, I think he, uh, he runs a single and, and Giagos does well to defend it. has his back against the fence. Moises sort of shucks him to the floor gets to his back as Giagos comes back up from four point. Uh, Moises kicks the bottom leg out, right? Which is the, the basing leg essentially. So that really, you know, pushes Giagos. Giag- How do I say that guy's name? Iagos. Iagos. Thank you. 
that guy drops all of his weight into the trailing leg. Moises then wraps up the Henzo Gracie type of leg entanglement where you have a grapevine leg and then you cross that grapevine leg and took that leg inside as well. So it's a little bit of a mixture of like a, a 10th planet lockdown, if you will, but with a triangle. It's like it's like a truck hook, but you triangle your leg and, and you know, took the leg inside, whatever. That really anchors you to the man, right? It's very difficult for you to untriangle a leg and take the grapevine hook out in any useful manner. Moises then starts to climb the back. Eventually, uh, Iagos is standing and Moises gets the back body lock. But really, that was fine. That, you know, that is what it is. We've seen these things before. The interesting thing to me was the finish. So when you're on the back, this is going to be a long soliloquy, lads, so buckle in. When you're on the back, the reason why the back is dominant is because you have cross-body control, right? The point of a seatbelt is that the top of my shoulder or the top of my elbow is connected to your shoulder in a... In, in the same way a seatbelt is, and my arm drapes across the line of your body. So it's difficult for you to turn and misalign your spine from my chest because I have control over the four points of your body in a, you know, in a cross-section manner. The thing that happens a lot when people get the back is the hand fight is the most pivotal thing, right? People say that this in, in the sport that the back is the most dominant place, and it is because you can't get submitted from the back very very easily. And it's very difficult for you to get knocked out if you've taken somebody's back. However, when you're on the back, you have two weapons, and those are your hands, right? Your partner has three defensive weapons, two hands and tucking your chin. So generally, the hand fight is the most important part of the battle. In modern MMA and in modern grappling, you see guys trap hands with the body triangle or with legs, which reduces it to an equal sum battle of one hand and one chin versus the attacker's two hands. And generally, if you've got one hand and one chin, you're probably going to lose that fight. But what uh, Moises does and does really well is he forced Iagos to commit both of his hands to a defensive action. So he wraps like a mandible strangle type. So it goes straight across the face, the likelihood of that getting a tap is very, very limited, especially in an MMA fight, right? You don't quite have the purchase with the thickness of the gloves to get quite and deep enough behind the neck to make a mandible strangle actually work. A mandible strangle is across the face, but if you squeeze down, the jaw hits the, the arteries and the esophagus, and it is actually a choke, a legitimate choke. It's a very painful one, but it is a choke. It's not as clean as a rear naked strangle, but it's still a choke. Anyway, Iagos does the right thing, committing two hands to the elbow of uh, the left elbow on, on Moises and drags it up his face, which is the right thing to do, right? If he drags it down, he's going to end up in a rear naked choke. So he drags it up his face, which is the right thing to do. The problem, however, is Moises is squeezing his left arm. So what Iagos is doing at the same time as clearing that mandible strangle is he's lifting his own chin up. Moises starts to release the pressure of his wrist and that gives space for him to dig his right hand through to an actual choke. He digs that right hand through and you see it. Iagos says to himself, fuck, I've made a mistake here. Moises gets halfway through. Iagos thinks, fuck, I need to bail on the mandible strangle elbow and I need to get to the hand fight. At that point, Moises opens up his left shoulder 
punches the choke all the way through. And instead of conventionally then looking to waste time and cover with the the knuckle over knuckle, behind the head, strangle, blah, blah, blah thing, he's doing something that, that Craig Jones, a prominent grappler, at the moment is doing. And he's covering the choking hand with the opposite arm. So he's taking his left arm, the right arm being the choking arm, and he's grabbing the elbow or the tricep of the choking arm. And he's finishing as you would with a regular rear naked strangle finish, which is lifting the elbow up and dragging it over the shoulder of the defensive man. The reason why this was special to me is because one, that's the first application of that sort of strangle that I've seen in really high level MMA. But also it's uh, it's an ode to setting traps and forcing people to fall into traps whilst on the back right? Something that I have spoken about recently is how the back position in MMA is diminishing and it's diminishing because it's really hard to choke people from the back because they're so comfortable there and guys should be going belly down and landing shots and, you know, the whole rhetoric. But Moises shows that if you apply the right set of traps and you force your opponent to fall into them, the submissions are still viable. So that was the thing I wanted to get to. And you obviously lay it out and explain it far greater than me. And and guys, I hope you appreciate one of the reasons that I wanted to have Harry on and, and continue to have Harry as my co-host on this show is because of that level of technical detail. I think it is important. I think it helps understand. And you may not know all the terms. You could go and check them out. You could go and look at the certain Just message names that come I'll out. Explain them. No you can also message Harry at BJJ underscore Harry Powell on Twitter. He is happy to explain them. He will probably WhatsApp you and, and send you videos as well. Um, the thing that I liked about it, beyond just understanding a little bit better now, the technique of it, is that it was a, a variant, right? I like variation. I like seeing evolutionary things. Yagos did everything right. He, he addressed things properly, and Moises is just that next step, that next in the chain of, of attacks ahead of him. Those things are important to me. He spoke about it afterwards that it's, you know, he hasn't gotten a chance to show his jujitsu that much, been doing it since he was a kid, all of those things. You and I sort of disagreed on, on my wanting to puff out my chest that it made my my call of this guy can still be a contender and still be somebody in there because it is Christos Yagos who has been kind of middle of the pack at best in his UFC career. I do think that evolutionary piece and that adjustment piece to find a different way to get that finish that is the advancement is part of that reason I am still high on, on this young man from Brazil. Another young man we are both high on and that I know you have copious amounts of notes on that we won't make you go through all of them. But I will start it by saying I got a message from Harry as I was watching these back this morning that said, have you gotten to Cousin Umar yet? I giggled the whole way through. What made you giggle about Umar Namegomedov dominating Nate Maness so much on Saturday night? I don't mean to be disrespectful to Nate Maness when I say that I giggled through Umar Magomedov's performance. Um, but I think we know 
in the community and we know in the media just how good Nate Maynus is, right? We know how good Tony Gravely is, and I think that that makes the the the, the win for Nate Maynus even more impressive. Um, we said on the preview that he didn't, he shouldn't have been a plus six hundred underdog. Like this was a gigantic betting line for a guy that was three and zero in the UFC, fourteen and one overall. It shouldn't have been that far, and yet the result plays out as. Yeah, it might have it might have could have been even wider. Yeah, I mean he got fucking wrecked, right? Like like the thing it's like you're watching a video game play out when somebody's paused the game and left the controller and gone to get a drink and the other player still playing, right? <laughs> like Umar Nurmagomedov <laughs> shot two three takedowns and landed all three with such little pushback and such little resistance right the thing that impresses me the most about Nurmagomedov is he plays the Habib blueprint now let me explain what I mean by that first because there's nuances to this obviously the Habib blueprint that was set is win the fight then go and have fun and that was shown against Alaya Quinta when he'd you know, dominated him for four rounds. And then he says to Javier Mendez, like, I'm going to go and be Mike Tyson now. I'm going to be on Muhammad Ali now. I'm going to go and do the boxing. And Javier Mendez is like, you're fucking not. You're going to go out there. You're going to take him down and you're going to defend your title. And he went out there and tried to do Mike Tyson things, right? Whatever. Against Edson Barbosa, the same thing. And nearly got wheel kicked into oblivion after dominating him for five rounds, right? It's it's the talking to Michael Johnson after he's clearly beaten the shit out of Michael Johnson of, look, you should just give up because this is not going to go very well from you from here on out. And I right. need to go fight for the title. So just, just stop this. And what Umar Nurmagomedov does and did so well is, again, he just plays the blueprint. He goes out, he takes your man down, he dominates the hip line. Dominating the hip line means... Uh, Manus is not getting up. He's not getting up. He's not scooting his hips back to the fence effectively because Umar's just sat on his hips. After he's sat on his hips and he's happy and Manus has accepted the position, he then starts to go to work for upper body grips. When he gets the upper body grips, he starts to pass. He passes. He decided to pass with the knee cut this time. Manus does a good job at getting to half a grip that Nurmagomedov doesn't like. What does Nurmagomedov do? Goes back and sits on his hips. After sitting on his hips, he knee cuts him. Then he gets the grip that he wants. And then he does the whole thing all over again. And it's just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. The moment that Maynus does something that uh, Nurmagomedov doesn't like or that isn't in the plan, he just goes all the way back, sits on his hips, knee cuts, pommel passes, high headquarters passes, float passes, and just does the same thing. The whole time... There was an oscillation between the Americana. The Americana is very easy to defend, but Manus had an underhook and didn't want to give it up. If he gave it up, he exposed his back all the way, and that's not where you want a Nurmagomedov, right? So the oscillation was, do you want to get americana or do you want to get a gift wrap knee back taken? Manus wanted neither. And to be fair to him, he did a good job at slowing Nurmagomedov down in those positions. He wasn't giving away the Americana too well. He was doing a good job at keeping his elbow tucked. He was keeping a good job at keeping the underhook. 
But as the rounds wore on and, and Maynus got more and more and more distraught in those positions and was of the understanding that he just wasn't going to get back up and he can't stop the knee cut and he can't stop the, the upper body grips and he won't win inside position. It just becomes a slog, right? And by the end of the second round, Umar is fresh as fuck and Maynus has that, that maybe not a thousand yard, maybe like an 850 yard stare in him right. of like, I know I'm not going to win this fight. Like I, I could feel that I can't beat this guy. Right. And then, you know, Umar comes out in the third round and does some spinning things and some big kicks and the things and the stuff. And, you know, for about two and a half minutes, he has this fun and then he goes and takes him down and finishes the round on top and whatever. Right. And I think that the reason that that was so brilliant to me is it was like watching a training session. It was like Manus was there just to give Umar Nurmagomedov a showing. Whereas we know and we've spoken about right. that Nate Manus is a fucking serious fighter. And Nurmagomedov says, that's cool, watch this. It's just effortless brilliance. Yeah, I mean, it's the reason going in, my question on Wednesday was, how good is Umar? This was going to be that test that the next in the in a line now of tests that measures out where he is. This is, these are just aptitude tests from here on out. And it's, I mean, all fights are really, how good is he? Can he pass this level? Okay, he passed this level. And not only did he, like, this wasn't a squeak by, this was A+. plus aced the test, off you go, could probably skip the next grade. That's the takeaway for me, is that we could probably move past the next round of fight these guys in the middle of the division and get them up there. I mean, if you want to rush it into a top 15 fight just to see, I'm not mad at it. There's lots of guys in the division that, you know, this this is a super, super deep division, super competitive div division. There are lots of names that you could throw out there. But I mean, you want to move him into that pack just outside of it that we've seen, you know, the Adrian Yanez's of the world in that range. Let's, let's go and do that. Let's, we don't need to have any more fights against the Nate Manuses of the world. We don't need to have a Cody Stamen fight next. He beats Cody Stamen. The other takeaways for me from this actual performance one, the, the kicking game, just in terms of the quickness, dexterity, variety, is really, really impressive to me. It's sort of, I think, in writing it up and talking about him in the last couple of days before this fight, kind of made a point of like, this isn't necessarily like straight Khabib. This is variant Khabib. There is elements, as you've said and as you articulated, of the of the Khabib kind of blueprint and DNA, but there's also the kicking game, which we, you know, front kick to the mush, couple of head kicks that land clean, the spinning in the third because he wants to have some fun. Really impressive. The other thing for me that that I think is be going to become and continue becoming an important thing in MMA is the first two rounds, it's open mat wrestling. It's not, I've got to drive you into the fence and then I've got to hustle and work and chain and try this and nope and readjust. It is, I'm going to get underneath. I'm going to get under, under your ass and put you on the ground right here. And it's going to happen quickly. That to me is becoming a big, 
differentiating part and a huge thing, especially for grapplers. Yeah, and I'll I actually I'm gonna push back a little bit on the Habib thing. Like I I I agree with what you're saying that it's not straight Habib, but I also think it is straight Habib, right? I just think Habib is living vicariously through the next generation of fighters. If Habib For sure. if Habib could kick that way, he would have. <laughs> but that's what I mean, right? Is that it's not just so I think a lot of people's sense of Habib is the straight wrestling dominance, and that's it. We occasionally saw a punch. You know, we saw the one right hand against Connor. We saw him want to fuck around with Ally Aquinta, but it was mostly I'm putting you on the ground and I'm smashing you. Whether that's grappling smashing you or actually physically forearms and punches smashing you, it was just take down and smash. Umar's happy to stand out there and kick you in the face if that's what you want to do. If you want to play that game, he will do it. But as you're saying, there is very much the, I'm going to put you on your ass if I want to, and there's nothing you can do to stop it at where he is now in the, in the progression. Yeah. And I bet you as fucking sure as anything, if he started the first two and a half minutes doing the kicking game, Habib would have beat the shit out of him when he got back to the corner, right? There is no fucking way that you're going to see uh, Umar Nurmagomedov in the opening stanza of a fight unless he absolutely cannot get the takedown strike with a man. I just, you're going to see Saeed and Umar, uh, Umar do the same thing. It's wrestle, 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 wrestle. Diminish the energy, diminish the energy, diminish the energy, diminish the energy. Have fun now. Win. Right. Done. Right. The one last takeaway for me, and it's not even a new one, it is just a... a reaffirmation bantamweight is the best division in the ufc right now it is the deepest most competitive division in the ufc it is the most entertaining god i love what the future holds in this division opening bout of the main card my guy chris curtis the action man goes out and gets a victory against hadolfo Vieira. um you and i kind of disagreed a little bit about this performance i thought it was a little bit harder work than chris curtis maybe necessarily. I think it's that my expectation was that Chris Curtis wouldn't have as much struggle at times with Hidalfo Vieira as he did. Your take was what, sir? Just thought it was a showcase, to be honest. Um, I felt like Curtis went out there to prove a point that you're not going to take him down. And look, Hidalfo Vieira is a supreme... Uh, submission specialist had a fucking brilliant double leg for jiu-jitsu but isn't uh, an out-and-out wrestler he is a great athlete but he's also older in his career Um, and I think that Curtis saw this as an opportunity to show that if he wants to keep this on the feet he will and yeah I hear what you're saying that he made it uh, more difficult than he maybe needed to. But I also think Hadolfo showed improvements in the stand-up. Yeah, by the end of it, his face was a bit of a mess. But he had some really nice one-two timing. He used his jab well. Yes, okay, the transitions between the striking and the and, and to him taking his shots at double legs were, wasn't fantastic. He wasn't setting them up beautifully. It was very much like a, I'm striking, now I'm shooting. And that meant that 
Chris Curtis was able to defend really well. He showed open mat sprawling. He showed some really beautiful hip dexterity to jump over the half guard poles. He showed that he could cage wrestle defensively really well. All of those things were nice. He showed that his body hitting was really nice. And I think it was the body hitting that largely won in the fight. Um, but I don't think it was a, I'm going to go out here and have a close fight. I think it was, a, I'm going to let him do what he thinks he is good at and I'm going to beat him there and then I'm going to punish him. That was my read anyway. Fair. And and as I said off the top, maybe it is my expectation and, and thinking we're going to see a similar effort to what we saw from Chris Curtis in his first two fights against Phil Haas and, and Brendan Allen, where he just, to me, disrespected both guys. Said, you don't have anything for me here. I'm going to march you down and, and finish you. I thought maybe we would see more of that, but in talking to you, in thinking it through, it takes a lot of fucking energy to stuff all of those takedowns to then ask for him to get on his horse and, and run this guy down. A good win, nonetheless, to move to 3-0 and in the UFC, to keep the winning streak going, to put himself in a position to move forward in a fairly wide-open division where there's always a need for contenders. A great win for Chris Curtis. Really good to see. And a good way to kick off the main card. I'm going to let you kind of pick and choose the couple of people that you would like to talk about on the prelims, we don't need to go through all of it, but what were some of the some of the performances or individuals that stood out for you from the early slate of fights on Saturday? So I think the obvious one is is Mario Batista. Um, just looked brilliant against Brian Kelleher. You know, Kelleher has had a lot of fights, you know, 28 fight, 38 fights in his career, sorry. It's a lot of fight time. He's taken a lot of damage. He's a wily veteran. He took his gloves off uh, at the end of the fight. I didn't see them on the floor. He wasn't interviewed. So who knows whether that's a six-month break before his next one or whether that's a, you know just a normal thing that Kelleher does. But the way in which Bautista forced Brian Kelleher to expose his back and then the eventual choke was beautiful. I thought Cody Durden looked pretty good, just hella aggressive. JP Baez showing that he still doesn't have a chin. I picked Morozov and Paiva as the low-key sort of sleeper for fight of the night. And whilst I don't think it was fight of the night, it was a very, very fun fight. I think it lived up to what I expected it to be. Um, I was kind of shocked with the decision. Uh, I need to go back and watch it again. But I think from my first watch, I had it uh, a bit closer. I think it was 30-27 Morozov. And I think that was I had it closer than that. Um, I will touch a little on uh, Nerdenbeke and TJ Brown. Like to me, I said this at the right top. Nerdenbeke had just a better overall grappling game in this fight. TJ Brown had some interesting submission entries, had some interesting stuff off his back. But at no point did Nerdenbeke really look all that troubled. We saw Nerdenbeke do the grapevining and the Dagestani handcuff stuff that we see the Nurmagomedov brothers do and cousins do. And I think that that is why I look at Gamrat and Soryukin in such a in such a light, and I, I point to it as the future of MMA because you go and look at Nerdenbeke. Now, don't get me wrong, your man's had fucking forty-eight MMA fights, right? But he's not a guy that's well known or is super prominent 
or he's probably going to be super prominent in the 145 division. But you go and look at the influence that the modern MMA, modern grappling uh, offerings have given to the, the guys lower down the pecking order. And that tells me that it's filtering all the way through, all the way through the gyms in the West, all the way through the gyms in Europe, all the way through the gyms in the East. And guys that you've never heard of are doing the things that you're seeing at the highest level because coaches are looking, they're deconstructing what's happening, and then they're just teaching that. So kids that are coming through are going to learn about grapevines and Dagestani handcuffs, and they're going to learn about the Moises finishes. And that, to me, is why you're able to see the likes of uh, Saryukian and Gamrot do the things that they do in the main event, right? And the last person I'll touch on before I throw it back is Carlos Solberg. And I just get, I feel as though Carlos Solberg has a serious upside, but also has an absolute bag of work to do, which you'd expect from a five right. and one MMA fighter, right? Right. The, up, the upside is the power. The downside is a little bit of everything else, really. Right. So I'm going to work through that, that same sort of order. Mario Batista is a guy that I've been looking forward to seeing more from. I think he's he's looked good in fits and starts. He got caught against Trevin Jones. These things happen in MMA when you're fighting a guy that's got big power and, and swings from his hips, as Five Star does. I like everything about Mario Batista's game. There's the little subtle things about his game that I really like. He faints a lot. He does the little hip twist faint that makes you think about a kick. It makes you think about a level change. The transition finish in there is just beautiful. He's attacking the neck long before going for anything else. And I think that's another piece of this evolutionary chain we're seeing in grappling where it used to be, well, you've got to settle into this spot and you've got to get this and then you go to this and then you do that. It, it's changing. Guys are switching up. People are switching up their approaches and attacking when they have openings. And I thought that was a beautiful finish. Cody Durden, for as much of a jackass as he was following the win over a Ricky Ling, is proving that he is a serviceable flyweight going forward. I think he can live in this space that he's in right now. Go out there and be a tough fight and a test for the guys at the bottom of the division and a tough fight for the guys ahead of him. I thought he was the perfect matchup for Mohamed Mokayev in London. We saw how that went because Mokayev is phenomenal. This was a proper matchup to see kind of where he fits. And, and if Baez has anything, he doesn't, so be it. Um, Nernambeki, as you said, has a ton of fights. Now, all of that is grain of salt stuff because these Chinese promotions will run guys out there every two weeks um, against. There's no, there's no filtering for level of competition and amount of experience. Um, shout out to the guys at Sherdog and the guys at Topology, Robert Sargent, chief among them, for going through and sorting out all of these records of these fighters from China. And I know a lot of it coincided with the road to UFC um, events that took place last week. But a good performance, a second straight victory. These are the things you want to see from a guy that is still relatively young, but as you pointed out, is picking up and showing off some of those positive influences and positive pieces that have made other people successful to go out and, and build from having lost his debut to get to a point where he is now. And I second your feeling on Carlos Alberg. The man has a death touch. 
he's got the oh shit factor of, I mean, he hit Tafon Chukwe with a jab and Tafon Chukwe backpedaled into the fence and had, you know, drunk legs where he wasn't quite sure if he was going to put his right foot in front of his left again. Albert gets the finish properly and go, you know, swarms in, gets the finish. But I do agree with you that there is some, okay, but what else is there to him and some uncertainty to him? And you were saying off air that it it seems a little bit like very, very happy to be the hammer. Let's see what you, let's see what you can do when you have to be the nail. Yeah, and I don't know how well that's going to fare. Like, as a, we spoke off air, that I went back and watched some of the Olberg kickboxing matches, and he was fighting guys with good records, right? Whether that means he's fighting good competition or whether he's fighting guys with good records, I, I, I don't know the scene well enough to discern that. Maybe it's uh, something, you know, if Olberg continues to be prominent in the USC and prominent in the division, I think it's, it's an act that I'll go back and I'll, I'll do the research of his, of his kickboxing back catalogue. But he just feels to me as though, I mean, he feels to me like a five and one fighter. That's what he yeah. feels like, you know? He feels like he hasn't quite worked out what range he wants to fight at yet. He doesn't feel to me like he quite is comfortable going backwards it felt the same when when i was watching him in his kickboxing matches he's brilliant going forward dictating the range using the teeps looking for the left hook he has a wicked right high kick um but it just feels to me as though there's a ton of growing to do now look city kickboxing has produced some of the most innovative most evolutionary footwork across weight classes that we've seen in a long long time so if Olberg is able to pick up some of those things and some of those traits, he is in a division of guys that doesn't have a ton of footwork, right? So if you can use that footwork and pair it with the left hook and the right kick, he could go seriously big places very, very quickly. I just wonder how long it takes him to piece those things together before he sees stiffer tests in that division. Right. Light heavyweight, there are certainly opportunities. It is always pretty wide open. Two or three good wins or good performances actually get you into that mix where you're fighting recognizable names. The last thing I want to say about this, and and it sort of is just a a tie-up to the whole thing. I write about all of these fights. I We talk about all of these fights, all of these events, week on end. I know it can be daunting. It's, It's certainly difficult to cover all of these events all the time, to pay attention, to remember things. But it's cards like this and it's it's events like this. Like it's easy to be excited for next week. And we certainly are. And I understand everybody being excited for next week for UFC 276. It's cards like this that are producing those move forward opportunities for some guys that are going to be that next wave and showing some evolutionary elements of the sport for you and I, those are the things we care about the most. We want, we want more what is best for the sport and to see the growth and development of the sport and its athletes than the names or individual things. And I think a card like this, albeit that it went, you know, started late, started at the kind of pay-per-view time, if I remember correctly, not having watched it, but having set my PVR to record it. Cards like this, and and I go back to what I said off the top. 
the fact that it got dismissed a little bit or it got diminished a little bit based on name value to me is problematic. And in getting the performances we saw and in getting the results that we saw that I think a bunch of them are actually going to have legitimate divisional ramifications within the next couple of years. That's got to be what we're looking for from an event like this, you know, leading into a, a pay-per-view kind of the, the appetizer for the, for the pay-per-view. I forget what I called it on, on Friday because it's been a long couple of days since then, but the setup to that, that pay-per-view, these are the, this is the next wave, as you said in your terrific breakdown of, of the main event. That is the evolution of, of these athletes. That is the evolution of this sport. These are the events that, that get us there more so, I would say, than even these events like next week where it's a bunch of big names and a bunch of big, exciting fights. And I'm, I'm as excited as anybody, but I really loved this event. And I hope people enjoyed both watching it and, and you and I talking about it today because I feel like these are the ones that really make a difference going forward. Yeah, I mean, as I said to you offline, I'm kind of done with the, and I'll state this publicly, as I've said this before, I'm kind of done with arguing with rhetoric. If it's something I don't agree with, I'm just going to do what I do. And if people like to consume it, whether that's here or on Severe May, I will do. I'm done uh, doing, you know, any form of arguing, really. I just, uh, it's, it's, it's shouting into a chasm. And, and and I have no time for it. Like, if uh, I, I feel as though the most important thing is to just bring value to the sport and do it silently. Um, and I don't want to make this too personal, right? It's whatever. We're, we're, we're reviewing the cards and this is always, as always, is about the fighters. But I think if you just bring value silently, whatever is out there will be out there and your work will eventually rise to the top if it's good. And that's it, you know? The fights were were really really good. We saw some some great things. I think the UFC is in the best position it's ever been in in terms of the talent it has. Don't get me wrong; it's also turned into you know the, the UFC is in. Oh Jesus, I'm starting a rant here. This is a the UFC is in a strange dichotomy, right? Where it's filled its roster with guys that probably shouldn't be in the UFC coming from the contender series and Dana White looking for a fight and whatever. And whether that's a function of COVID, whether that's a function of the new SPN era, whether that's a function of, you know, matchmaking uh, preferences changing or whatever, that's a conversation for another time. But at the top of the divisions in the UFC, for the most part, other than middleweight, generally, we're looking at the best fighters in the world. And we're looking at evolutionary levels of MMA and we should really, really, really savor it. I'm going to personally keep working on the not shouting into a chasm, not getting into fights. I occasionally still like getting into a fight. I will occasionally still jump on here on a Monday and rant from the heart about things like Yuri Prohoshka getting a hero's welcome and dismissing this main event. But ultimately I feel the same way as Harry. I am here to deliver content to you people that consume it. We are here collectively on Sundays to do that. If you like it, fantastic. We love you. We appreciate you. We value you. If you don't, and there are other things you like, Aces, fully entitled, enjoy it. It's not for us. We'll be here doing our thing. 
if you want to come around, you know how to find us to that end. Go follow him at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. Follow the Severe MMA boys. Join their Patreon. I say it every week and I will continue to say it every week. The work they do is better than anyone else in this industry because it is from the grassroots up and it is from the perspective of giving you the information you need to know about fighters at every level and strictly about the events and the athletes participating in them, nothing else. There's no drama. There's no beefs. There's no anything. Just good quality reporting, good quality coverage from good quality people. So go, go follow them. If you're here, you know, generally, I would think how to follow me, but it is at Spencer Kite. I will be back tomorrow morning with another podcast. I don't know what it's going to be yet. I'm going to tape it tonight. Um, There's a lot to talk about at UFC 276, so probably something there. We'll sit down in the next hour or so and kind of get a look at it. But for now, I'm going to go. Harry's going to go get some sleep because it's late in London town. We will be back next Sunday with probably a very long, very thorough, hopefully very long, very thorough edition of the Next Day Takeaways because UFC 276 is just fantastic from top to bottom. Until then, know that you are loved. Be good to one another. Take care of yourselves. And we'll see you next Sunday.